0: I'm Alejandro Melian.
1: I'm Daniel Chu Castillo.
0: And I'm Megan McGill. Welcome to Talking Culture.
2: Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyan Kahaga on the land known as Chutjage. We recognize the Ganyan Kahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. It feels <laughs> good to all be together again. No, it's
0: been too long. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Even the scheduling with time differences close, spring schedules is, is <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> so, I'm very excited about this episode because it's another one that takes the shape of, a, of an essay. So, it's a bit different. It's the spice of our repertoire.
2: <laughs> nice.
1: In this episode, we're welcoming my friend Kando Langri, and it will be my pleasure to introduce her before we begin. She's a disabled Tibetan of mixed lineages born in the United Kingdom, but raised in Chochiaga. Her undergraduate honor thesis focused on Tibetan Sign Language, in which she explored tensions around language, disability, identity, and place. She recently finished her Master's in Social Anthropology at the University of Oxford, which is what we'll be talking about in this episode. She's passionate about Tibetan land, life, and textures, and loves writing about golden fish, mountains, and grasslands. And building of that, in this episode, we're going to be talking about roads. Specifically, the roads built in India by Tibetan refugees back in the 1960s. These roads are what she talks about in her master's dissertation, and she links them with Said's pathos of exile.
2: Mm. I'm super curious to hear more about how this episode ties into the themes of possibility. I mean, it's even, even <laughs> in the title.
1: Right. Actually, this um, episode took many shapes, and then uh, she finally decided on this title, um, Surfaces of the Possible, which I find really beautiful and poetic.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely.
1: and. So Kando understands these roads that Tibetan refugees built as a sort of surface of the possible, actually. Mm. This is in the sense that when they were building these roads, they added little bits of beauty here and there.
0: That sounds so lovely. Yeah, I think (laughs) that is a very poetic title. I'm really excited. But when you think that, I kind of think of like... Planting flowers or like flower boxes along the road or something. Is that what happened?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly what it is. But not only that, I mean, she discusses a variety of everyday acts of beauty, which do include planting flowers in repurposed oil cans, but also singing songs. And by enacting those, Tibetan people remake the foreign lands that they're exiled in In into collective places of survival and transformation, according to Kando's words.
2: I mean, I love that. I think that transformation is often one of the things we think of as the most beautiful, you know, like the image of this is super cheesy because it's used so much. But like the image of the um, butterfly emerging from a cocoon, you know, like you couldn't get a more picturesque idea imagistically of what beauty is. So like thinking about transformation and connecting it with beauty in that way
0: is, is I mean, it's gorgeous. I think I really like this idea of the like practice of building the road as adding beauty to it, things you might not see, um, like singing songs you're not going to see on the road like later, but that that is also a practice of like making it beautiful and and of transformation. I really love that. I'm, I'm so excited to hear more about this.
1: Actually, in one of the moments in this essay, she talks about returning to these places. And exactly like you say, Megan, like you don't necessarily see all those traces but you know they were there and it sort of animates the the place that you're in um with memories that are not necessarily yours but part of your community and kind of talks beautifully about it um so yeah
2: yeah i mean i think that that's probably true for every place that that we care about and places that we call home or are important to us so much of the care work and so much of the beauty that has gone into these places aren't physical. They're not, they don't necessarily, you know, leave a permanent trace. But I don't know, I like to think that the the memory or like the shadow of all of that beauty that was more ephemeral still sort of resonates in those spaces.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about all of those things that um, go into the places in the past that, that I look at that you wouldn't be able to see that we try to imagine yeah. um, when thinking about this, you know? Like, what an exciting way to think about it is full of sound and, and beauty. That's so true.
1: And particularly, I think, um, the saliency of the historical context because it's a moment of exile, it's a moment of trial, and yet there's this coexistence mm. of... of a thrust to make things beautiful at the same time that they're painful
2: yeah
3: Mm.
1: okay well without further ado let's listen to the episode
3: Edward Said diagnoses the pathos of exile as the loss of contact with the solidity and satisfaction of earth. I find traces of this loss in the ways my loved ones make sense of absence. My father, his cabinet full of items from pawn shops sold by Tibetan refugees, attempting to find long-lost objects whose textures continue to haunt our every day. Grandmother's earrings, the flint she used to make fire for the morning tea. My friends who scour the Chinese internet for fragments of life and land the ways in which my community is eager to circle dance at every occasion of meeting, no matter how fleeting, how I've spun joyfully mirroring the movement of stars in church basements and parks on cracked pavement in front of embassies. I locate within the textures of objects, screenshots and circle dances, small surfaces for the possible, surfaces which help us reestablish contact with the solidity and satisfaction of our ancestral earth. This is a form of possibility which, while laced with grief and loss, for ground's beauty and continuous movement as a register of futurity. Very broadly, it is these very surfaces that I study as a graduate student in anthropology. Indeed, I am interested in the ways in which surfaces emerge and are felt at the confluence of social, political, and the cultural, how they reveal and obscure different sedimented histories and affects. I feel the urge to write about the surfaces from which our theory emerges, sites of worlding and wounding, Such an analysis is attuned not only to the textual, but the textural, the surfaces which are impressed upon our bodies and upon which we impress ourselves, which are built from ancestral and emergent emotional knowledges. As Tibetans, our theory emerges from our relationships to our ancestral land. The Tibetan creation story traces the origins of the Tibetan people to the union between a compassionate monkey, an emanation of the Buddha of compassion, and a wrathful mountain ogress, which is known as Shinmo in Tibetan. Their union brought forth the ancestors of the Tibetan people, who, in time, lost all their monkey features except for their red faces. This creation story orients us towards the land itself, the Tibetan people emerging from the encounter between animal and mythical creature, Buddhist and pre-animist traditions. Referring to themselves colloquially as the red-faced people, we wear the impression of the land upon our faces, faces made red by the high altitude, sun, and the wind of the plateau. In Tibetan cosmology, the physical land of Tibet is conceived of as a supine demoness pinned down and tamed by the various Buddhist edifices that were built across her body. Both the creation story and the cosmological conception of Tibet depict the land as one from which Tibetans derive their very shape and bodily horizons. Mishwana Gurman of the Tonawanda Band of Seneca argues that indigenous land is relational and experiencing land as such becomes expression of self through the shared experience of naming, connections to others are formed. Land is a generative site of spatial relationships born from the personal and communal experiences and stories. For German, land serves as a mnemonic device within collective memory. She posits, all places have voices that keep the landscape firmly in the realm of the symbolic as well as the real to the stories it recalls. The land acts as a mnemonic device in many ways by being the site of stories that create cohesive understandings of longing and belonging. The land as a mnemonic device emerges within oral histories and autobiographies of Tibetan exiles, whose narratives of life on the land prior to departure reveal to us this intimacy. The first autobiography of the Dalai Lama begins with a vivid description of his birthplace of Thakser. He writes, It was a beautiful country. Our village, which lay on a little plateau, was almost encircled by fertile fields of wheat, and the plateau, in turn, was surrounded by ranges of hills which were covered in grass, Thick and vividly green. Similarly, poet Tsering Wangmo discussing her hometown of Dompa, writes We say we are good and loyal people because our land is so beautiful. Our land is our ornament. Discussing the first generation of exiled Tibetan women, Losang Rabge points to the identifications Tibetans had with particular villages within regions and provinces from which intimate knowledge was generated dialect, kin, and community. Through these narratives, the land emerges as something all encompassing and folding the Tibetan body and shaping its surfaces. Domba writes, It is a land that surrounds us and nothing else, the mountains we climb with great effort, the rivers we cannot wade through during the summer months, the long winters that make the road so icy that it neglects its purpose and traps our living beings. It is a land that envelops us like a womb. Huacigyal has remarked that, although being perceived by Chinese policymakers as an inhospitable wasteland, the Tibetan plateau is overflowing with life, both physical and spiritual, with whom Tibetans live in close proximity. Braided into the physical landscape of Tibetan is a spiritual realm inhabited by local deities known as Hula. As such, Gyal has argued that in order to apprehend the Tibetan environment, one must be attuned to the ways in which the Tibetan people live in relation not only to the territory, but also the deities and animals which roam it. So what then to make of this catastrophe of exile, which is marked by not only bodily fracture, The separation from one's ecological niche within which the parameters of the everyday took place, but also cosmological fracture marked by a loss of protective deities. If land is a kind of mnemonic device, as I have argued previously, what happens then to those who are no longer enveloped by it? Here I want to talk about a surface from which much of exiled materiality derives its textures, a road in the foothills of the Himalayas which winds along the borders of what separates what is presently known as India and China the field site of my master's dissertation weaving between lush green hills this road connects Dharamsala the exiled capital of Tibetans to Shimla a former British hill station in 1959 in the wake of mounting violence inflicted upon the Tibetan people's ancestral homelands by the People's Republic of China which had invaded and annexed Tibet plateau in 1950 the 14th Dalai Lama, and thousands of Tibetan refugees fled into the neighboring country of India. As Tibetan geographies were reimagined within Chinese cartography, the traditional provinces of Kham, Amdo, and Utsang being subsumed and redrawn, so too did Indian topography, itself in the early stages of independent nationhood, shift to accommodate a vast militarization. In the initial days and years of exile, newly-arrived Tibetans became ensnared in this vast shift, Working as road construction laborers in the northern states of Himachal Pradesh, Jammu and Kashmir, West Bengal, Arunachal Pradesh, Uttarakhand, and Sikkim, their bodies deemed particularly well-suited to work at high altitudes by the Indian government. As each section of the road was completed, they packed up their tents and moved up further along the road, having been forced from grasslands to gravel. Although I had heard many stories over the years, as I returned to the road in summer of 2015, Embodied images of life in the road construction camps my father had shared with me—dust, flowers and repurposed cans, singing Tibetan women, dress in traditional dress, children with twine-wrapped waists—became increasingly vibrant, traversing time and space and returning us, albeit temporarily, to the origins of our exile. A hidden landscape had revealed itself, and, within it, I began uncovering a kind of recreation story. My dissertation examined refugee road construction camps in the 1960s where these newly-arrived Tibetans were put to road construction labor. Building off of Sar Ahmed's notion of orientation, I argued that the departure from ancestral territory and arrival into exile entailed an encounter with the discursive limits of the body and language, a moment of disorientation. I then discussed how, through road construction, Tibetan refugees were rendered instrumental in processes of national orientation, performing the labor of Indian state-making. In counterpoint to these experiences of disorientation, I address the ways in which new Tibetan ways of being were asserted in processes of reorientation, grounded in an ethos of everyday beauty amidst dust and death. For this podcast, I want to focus on this question of the possibility of beauty as it pertains to the surface of the road. The experience of encountering a world within which one cannot find one's place involves the work of reorientation. In reorienting oneself, Ahmed argues that one deploys orientation devices, which can be described as ways of extending bodies into spaces that create new folds or new contours of what we could call livable or inhabitable space. Roads can also be understood as orientation devices, as they generate ways of turning towards Indian statehood. When I think of Tibetan practices of orientation, however, I am immediately drawn to that of kora, circumambulation, from the word kor, meaning circle. The practice of kora involves revolutions around secret structures, both natural and man-made, an act which accumulates good merit which carries over into the next life. Integral to kora is a movement of reciprocal transformation of both landscape and self. In circulating around an object or a place, one records its impression on the body while inversely impressing oneself upon it. Within kora, I locate a force of loving rumination, which might help us think through the ways in which Tibetans went about reformulating ways of being in a vastly different world. In enacting kora, Tibetans create surfaces of contact between their bodies and landscape, which is reshaped through this encounter. Kora might then be understood as an aesthetic intervention generated from a propensity for movement and continuity. While not considered as practices of kora, I now turn to two aesthetic interventions into the Indian landscape, flowers and work songs. Positioning them both as orientation devices, which, operating within koda logics, help Tibetans reorient themselves amidst experiences of disorientation. study of everyday practices of spatial imaginings of Palestinian children in the Balata refugee camp in the West Bank, David Jones Marshall argues that within experiences of trauma and loss, an aesthetics of beauty is not only possible, but also serves as a force for reimagining place and formulating new political subjectivity. Here Marshall builds off of Jacques Rancière's conception of aesthetics, which, departing from a Kantian understanding of aesthetics as a mode of disinterested appreciation of beauty, describes a relation between what people do, what they see, what they hear, and what they know. Such a distancing of aesthetics from art conforms with Russell Sharman's call for an anthropology, which takes into account aesthetic systems as embodied processes of cultural transformation. Although both approaches disentangle aesthetics from beauty, within this dissertation, I was concerned with the ways in which Tibetans made life in the camps beautiful, as a means of orienting themselves in a disorienting world. Marshall reprises Thompson's argument that the affect of beauty exists in contrast to the affect of injury. While pain reduces one to the boundaries of one's body, beauty inversely opens it up to an intimate politics of sharing, which moves us towards others. In the context of violence, then, Marshall argues that beauty, rather than a coping mechanism, must be read as a force for generating an aesthetic rupture, a reorientation, which might reveal new and more hopeful futures. As such, an aesthetic anthropological method might help trouble the turn towards what Sherry Ortner calls dark anthropology, an anthropology which preoccupies itself with the subjectivities which emerge amidst harsh conditions such as violence, domination, and death. An attention to beauty might then orient us not only to Tibetan experiences of heat and death, but also towards an everyday ethos of kindness, resilience, and beauty. Norbu, recalling his experiences living in a construction camp near Gangtok, Sikkim, states, the area was crowded with Tibetan refugees, and newspaper reporters frequented it to gather so-called atrocity stories. In this brief remark, were offered a glimpse at a particular aesthetic of suffering attractive to journalists and researchers, to the detriment of other aesthetic forms, which might be read as out of place. The primacy of these atrocity stories implies that other stories have, for the most part, evaded the physical archives of the road, occupying instead the memories and stories carried by the generation of road builders. When asked about the hardships of life in road construction camps, my father immediately orients me to the flowers Tibetans planted outside their tents. Wherever we went, there was always a preoccupation with making it beautiful, he says. The elders would ask Indian shops for empty cans of ghee, in which Tibetans would plant flowers. They particularly loved marigolds and cosmos. The image of flowers appears in Dumpa's poem, Body is What is Remembered. She writes, Marigolds can be grown in an empty kerosene barrel, eggshells and soggy tea leaves applied as fodder. The presence of flowers amidst the dust and death of the camps thus help give shape to the other stories which evade the archives. Stories of Tibetan resilience and beauty while also offering glimpses of the invisible parts of the landscape. Here I am reminded of Laila Lahod's experience of returning to not only the physical territory of an occupied Palestine, but also to the half ruins only visible to her father. While her perception was limited to the deep gouges in green hillsides made for Israeli settlements and miles and miles of highways crisscrossing the rocky landscape and claiming it with modern green signs in Hebrew and English, her father saw, within the interstices of these structures, the landscape of his childhood. As such, the ugliness of the infrastructure of occupation is momentarily subverted through the beauty of childhood images." beauty helps us enter an effective space which stretches beyond the physical territory of the present state of occupation and exile. In refugee camps, Marshall argues that aesthetic practices such as Palestinian embroidery and children's drawings are part of a performance of an as-if which extends beyond the simple act of making do, instead encompassing the patient and steadfast work of maintaining a home amidst uncertainty and trauma. Marshall thus argues that the very language of beauty is one which, in being deployed, expresses a political demand for one's life on one's own terms. Beyond language, beauty also reworks a landscape, creating counter-topographies which help recast foreign landscapes into new collective spaces of transformation and possibility. Thus beauty for refugees might be understood as a form of theory stemming from life itself. Tanana Athabascan professor Diane Millian argues that for non-Western peoples, theorizing emerges from the everyday, in narrative forms, in the stories we create, in riddles and proverbs, in the play with language. Theory thus emerges within the social insofar as they act as means for connecting certain ways of intuiting, feeling, and thinking with other ways of intuiting, feeling, and thinking, so as to generate a form of felt-embodied narrative practices." In the context of indigeneity, Millian locates within theorizing a form of everyday evasion and reformulation of place, which, against a background of historical and ongoing dispossession, works through movement and survival. Such a theory is first and foremost practical, generating new frames of engagement with the world through narrative experiences and stories. In uncovering stories of the everyday within the camps, particularly with regard to beauty, one might uncover a form of theory stemming from life. A common remark made by Tibetan elders is that while life on the road was difficult, it was also a time in which people were happy-go-lucky Nanga and Tibetan and cultivated a communitarian spirit, working hard during the days, and dancing and singing late into the night during the evenings. One image that embodies this ethos is that of work songs. Work songs are traditional songs which are associated with different forms of labor, such as harvesting, plowing, threshing, grass-cutting, roof-building, weaving, and caring for livestock. In being sung chorally, they establish a joyful rhythm which could facilitate hours of backbreaking work on the Tibetan plateau. Kila Deal, in her ethnomusicological study of Dharamsala, records a work song which emerges in the context of road construction in India, which goes as follows In this earth and the shovel, there are various flowers of every kind. Flowers, the thoughts of youth have been distracted by you. Where is our fatherland? Please explain our lineage. Without our country, I hesitate to tell you our lineage. A pleasant homeland brings happiness. The country of another is determined by her fate. If the right hand is tired, please join with the left hand. If the left and right hands are both tired, partner, please join me. From the image of flowers, memories of home emerge. Country, i.e. the land of Tibet, is the site from which lineage emerges. The land of India, then, is presented as a place within which such lineage is complicated. The country of another is determined by our fate reveals to us the ways in which Tibetans perceive their fate, their loss of country, and present physical labor as bound to the becoming of India. Beauty, longing, and resilience are entangled within this song, which, in establishing the rhythm of work, also invoke the ways in which Tibetans experience the landscape of India and Tibet contrapuntally. Building off the practice of kora, in which Tibetans territorialize themselves via continuous movement, I have attempted to uncover images which attest to the ways in which Tibetans reoriented themselves in the wake of experiences of an intense disorientation. I positioned flowers and work songs as orientation devices which serve as aesthetic interventions within the Indian landscape. In pointing to the ways in which Tibetans made life and surfaces within road construction camps beautiful, I have aimed to complicate common narratives of road construction found in archives. The images of the dust and heat existed counterpoint to the flowers and joyous sounds of Tibetan life chanting, praying, and singing while living on the road. We Tibetans say we are the children of the land of snows, a land of high peaks, pure earth, the place which is nearest the sun. Ours is a miraculous land, which poet Tseringwang Modompa describes as a womb which contains within its folds all forms of life, human, beast, insect, and spirit. This land makes me believe anything is possible, she writes. I have always been interested in this idea of possibility contained in this now faraway land, its textures and languages, how it makes itself known to us, how we sometimes arrive at its doorstep unexpectedly. We exiled Tibetans are also children of the dirt roads which wind along the foothills of the Himalayas in northern India. As I move along it, I search for the flowers of my father's memories, trying to hear the echoes of work songs sung many decades ago. I have argued that, to think through the collective story of Tibetan exile, one must lend theoretical space to the roads and the possibilities built by the first generation of Tibetan refugees. To learn about the road, one must be attuned to its effective legacies, the ways in which our elders and breaking stones generated new grammars of Tibetanness, grammars which guide the ways in which we tread lightly, far from the plateau we call home.
1: That's it for this week. This episode was produced by me, Daniel Chu Castillo, music by Justin Cover, cover art by Sophia Melian, and a special thanks to Kando Langry for agreeing to record this episode with us.
0: You can find a link to the sources cited in this episode on our website or in the show notes.
2: Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and come Talk Culture with us on Twitter at Talk TalkCulturePod or Instagram at Talk TalkCulturePodcast and check out our website talkingculture.ca to pitch an idea or hear more from the McGill-Anthro community.
1: Anthropology is a surface where ideas bloom.